Welcome to Growth Chat, a podcast series where we interview economists and social scientists asking about their most recent research papers and publications. The aim of this podcast is to share the invaluable work that economists, sociologists, anthropologists and historians do, making accessible to the general public and students, independently from their background and preparation. I'm your host, Marco Lecci, PhD student in Economic at Monash University, and with me, directing the interview, is Sasha Baker, Professor in Economics at Monash and Warwick University. Enjoy the interview. Good morning, or good afternoon. Uh, our guest today is Melanie Mengjue from uh, NYU Abu Dhabi, who joins us from LA, actually. And it's afternoon in LA and morning in Melbourne. And today we will be talking about Melanie's paper together with Stelios Michalopoulos in the QJE forthcoming entitled Folklore. And maybe uh, to get us going, Melanie, you could tell us a little bit about why uh, folklore is a topic that economists should be interested in. Sure, yeah. Um, so we've got this paper, I mean, Sasha has also seen it in various places. Uh, we're really happy that it's now published. Um, so the reason I studied folklore, um, I think initially it was just, it's, 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 it's so everywhere. So it's a very intuitive level that asking if it's relevant or if it's something we should care about. I mean, I would think you should because given it's so prevalent, but no one has actually done any tests on this. So it has stayed as really as a conjecture by anthropologists or comparative literature people for a very long time. So the, the conjecture has always been that folklore is a vehicle of cultural values. And as you know, that economist has recently been really interested in studying culture and the effects of culture. So then I think the question would be if there is a way to actually marriage these two literature and then just to use folklore as a way to measure culture. So that's how we started this. Um, I, I think initially it wasn't really as ambitious. I wasn't really thinking about the entire body of folklore. We were really thinking of something rather uh, much more modest, such as uh, the facts of, let's say, proverbs. But and we were really lucky it came by as this data set. Uh, this allows us to construct something much more systematic and the larger scale. So this is what the, in the end what we did. Um, also the data set we used in this paper. So you base your research on Berenskin folklore catalog. Uh, Berenskin is an eminent anthropologist. Can you tell us a little bit more on why this book, this catalog, uh, became the backbone of your research? Yeah, sure. Um, so there are a few data sets um, and different catalogs available for folklore. There is also this alternative data set um, I buy um, by the ATUs. Um, so this is a bit related, I guess it's useful to explain. Um, so the forensic data set has a very major advantage, which is it has just really decent coverage and it's also very detailed. Um, so if you do a comparison, you notice that it is the data set now the new younger generation of folklorists have been using. So we're kind of just being also converging with that um, benchmark um, industry standards. Um, when the processing became our backbone of the research, I don't think it's uh, it was uh, as uh, no, as obvious as you would think because the, there's multiple steps to to go through, and the raw data set itself really is just telling you what society has was starting. So that's it. But what we want is something uh, much closer to 
what economists are interested in, and, and usually it requires us to reduce the dimension uh, by uh, several layers. It has to really you know, cut it being a lot thinner and to be a lot more focused. So making sure that we understand what the stories are about and to be able to, uh, to aggregate it hopefully to, uh, to the society level. Um, but in, on the whole, I mean, we have nothing to complain. I think this is a wonderful data set that we're very lucky to have it. Um, Bransky, obviously, uh, uh, he should get a lot of credit for having uh, compiled this catalog in the first place. And the catalog is built on research of anthropologists who did field work in those societies in the first place. So when I think about uh, folklore myself, I think of like fairy tales that maybe my grandparents read out to me at bedtime. And um, how do you make sure that aren't these fairy tales all the same around the world? So how does it give you a sense of what's going on locally in a given area? So how did you um, so make sure that you can use it for your purposes? So yeah, folk tales, I mean, the fairy tales is really indeed a very important part of the folklore. So I think when you say fairy tales, you're thinking about usually it's a story that ends well. So it's like a good and beautiful wish. Um, there's also stories that's really dark, <laughs> which is also very wide, widely told. So it turns out societies has lots of different preferences and tastes in, in the stories they tell. Um, the first question, I guess, in terms of how similar they are, if they are the same motif, they are often a little bit different. So there will be a, a small differences in the shades of meanings. But what we make sure of is that the core of the stories remains the same. And the good thing is that part has already been done by Wierenski. So in the data set that we have, it, he only keeps the core plot. So this allows us to just measure the core plot and know how, how you know, what, what core plots are present in one society versus another. And we, once we do that, then we can build a measure in a more aggregated level and based on just whether or not this core plot is there. Uh, so we don't really worry about if there is small differences in, for the same story and different societies. It would be useful to look at, but this is, right now we don't really do that. Um, so it would be interesting to know what kind of impact those stories have on today's society. So we are looking at stories that are very old, right? Uh, fairy tales, uh, little stories, and what sort of impact those have on our socioeconomic outcomes today? So I think one of the reasons why folklore sounded so implausible as a research topic is because we do have this view, and those are old stories, and it seems like we're just telling them for fun, and seems like they're just stories told to little children. But in the end, the first that we empirically show there is, is actually a relationship. Uh, this is, for, I think, in and of itself is kind of phenomenon. So we didn't really, like, we, we thought it was possible, but we didn't really have any absolute guarantee that this is the case until we see the data, until we actually measure this uh, properly and then find this relationship is actually been right there. And I think this interesting is because as a concept, conceptually, the anthropologists have always thought there would be a relationship, even though no one has really been able to show it. And then, but at the same time, there's also strong ideological, ideological bias against it. Because the very notion that folklore is still relevant is actually seen as offensive to people who 
think we should you know we're a society of progress so we should actually just keep moving ahead and you know better the societies and that we are able to like change and alter the narratives so i think it is between these two it's almost like opposite views about what, what what society should be and how this folklore what kind of a role folklore plays or tradition plays and we find it like the exact spot we that we research at and then in the end you know, what we find is if you look at folklore and you both find the content of folklore seems to be very strongly associated with uh, the object objective aspects of the society such as geographic traits or you know societies political and social economic traits. Um, if you measure those traits in folklore data versus in the alternative data sources such as ethnographic atlas, I mean, the relationship is right there. But also the more subjective aspects such as the values and the beliefs. Uh, so to, in order to understand the latter relationship, we had to uh, resort to a more human-based approach. So which means you have to get people to read those stories and tell us what they're about. Uh, and what we find is, is uh, for some of the most relevant cultural traits, such as trust, um, gender norms, and, and um, anti-social norms, those various aspects we're interested in, that folklore seems to be a very reliable predictor of their actual beliefs held by members of the societies around the world. Amazing. Yeah, so you just mentioned some examples. So what I found in really fascinating reading this is, on the one hand, you, you show that geographic features uh, in the surrounding of where society lives uh, feature a lot in, in folklore, such as earthquakes, um, storms, hurricanes, whatever it is. Um, and in areas where these phenomena don't show up, they also don't feature in the fairy tales and folklore. But then you say that also for things that are, say, closer to economics, such as gender norms, whether women um, work in the labor market or rather stay at home and do housework, that also features in, in fairy tales. And, and hence, somehow, kids that get to hear that again and again and again when they are young, that seems to um, yeah, implant itself in their brains and shapes the views about what their role in, in life should be, right? That's essentially what your analysis shows. Yeah, yeah um, I would say like the first part, it's often just if your society is being located in those areas, and then of course you will be reflecting the features of the surroundings. So I think that part is, is almost you know, not surprising at all. And it's very descriptive. And then the second part, in terms of how exactly we have this, I think my view on this is that a lot of this is through osmosis. So it's not a story explicitly tell children that women should work, women should work outside of the home. It's like it's more of a story just depicting women as a strong women or some women as you know, the female goddesses in some societies or as a creator. So those are the kind of stories that are being told. So when you when you think back over the last years, because you've been working on this for I don't know four or five years. How many years did you work on this? So we started this in um, in 2017, almost exactly around this time so in February when I, I when I visited the um, studios in Providence. So yeah, it's been four years since we began the project. Yeah. So what did you find? 
particularly challenging in this journey? I mean, I can see the excitement and I like the paper a lot. Um, and probably that was what kept you going all the years. But also, what, what did you find challenging or what opposition did you find as you tried to publish this? Uh... Let's see. So I think there's two types of challenges. So one is just a, a dismissive response. So like you kind of encounter this everywhere because people think, so, so like for one, people just don't believe it because they think, oh, the internet is what you tell little children. Why would that matter? I mean, sometimes I had to say like certain aspects of our society just assign value based on those things. And they kind of just you know, doesn't believe it because it seems trivial. So there is that. And then in terms of the technical aspect, I think the hardest part is to actually measure those stories. Um, this is the hardest part. At one point we thought we just we could just do everything um, based on um, a pure machine learning approach, but then over and over again, as we ourselves realize, but also as referees been telling us that we know that it's important to also bring in a more uh, human-based approach. So I think that, that was, I think for, for a while was the bottleneck. And I'm glad we eventually uh, overcame this. And I think it was uh, uh, massively enriched the project and made it a lot better and also expanded our ability to explore many more dimensions uh, of folklore. So that's why we're now able to build measures for uh, gender norms. And we actually can actually also do things for let's say patients. Uh, so there's a lot more we can do once you can, you can use the, um, you can use the, you know, hum um, the creativity of the humans uh, yeah, not just machine learning. So it's actually an interesting lesson. Uh, just explain to us, there's a lot the machine learning can accomplish, but then I, I think you know, the human inputs at the end of the day is also really important. I'm a big fan of your paper. Honestly, <laughs> I love it. Um, very innovative, interdisciplinary. Uh, it brings on anthropology, a little bit of sociology, machine learning. Um, great, love it. Um, now I'm curious, what's your story? Why did you become an economist and, and like what led you to study culture in general? Uh, so um, let's see. Yeah, I think I haven't thought about this a lot in terms of, especially in terms of how did I become so interested in culture. So in terms of how I became social scientist or economist in general, and I would just say, I, I find it interesting. Like I find a lot of things interesting in general that I'm a very curious person. Um, and not much about following rules, but I'm curious how, how rules came about. I remember even just in high school, I spent ages talking and arguing with my best friend while waiting for the bus to come. So things like this, I think at some point I, I, did, I discovered you can actually make a career out of this. And I was like pleasantly surprised. Um, but then, yeah, I think there is, it's also, uh, I guess, the realization that the, you know, the more normative aspects, I guess, um, such as beliefs and the values is actually so important in economics. Um, that's much later on. So initially it was just, I was very curious and you know, curious about how things or the way they are. Um, and then economics obviously is a science about how to make decisions. And I think more recent literature all tells us that it's not, 
it's not you no know, as as simple as we thought. It's it's like it's not people don't always make rational decisions and they use shortcuts. I, I think that's how I became interested in the impact of culture. Um, but it's also because I think it, it gives us opportunities to really integrate uh, many other social sciences and humanities. And that's something I, I personally is, is very fond of. Um, I think it's great that we can, we can tap into the wisdom of other disciplines and experts in, in other subject areas. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you so much, Melanie. That was, that was fun. And uh, for our listeners, we also discussed uh, your work in our reading group here in Melbourne yesterday in a nice park, and people were excited about it. And we all agreed that your paper sets the stage for a lot more work to come about cultural economics and how it shapes uh, behaviors even today. So thank you so much for being with us today. And I hope that in a future edition, we can come back to you to talk uh, about some more of your work. Yeah? Thank you so much, Melanie. Take care. Thank you, Sasha. Thank you. It was good to see you. It was also good to see you, Marco. Thank you, Melanie. And thank Thanks. you, Sasha, for running the interview. I'll see you at the next episode. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>